I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on Conspiracy Theory Thursday. And I'm always glad to get your phone calls every day of the week. But this is the day of the week when most of the conspiracy theories tend to pop up. And I'm glad to entertain those as well. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here. And by the way, in a moment, I want to talk about whether or not Joe Biden is turning into a kind of dictator. Now, that uh, suggestion was made earlier this week, and I talked about it, that Donald Trump will be a dictator. And Trump actually uh, told Sean Hannity in an interview, you bet, on day one, I'm going to be a dictator. I'm going to close our southern border and start to drill, drill, drill. But after that, I'm not going to be a dictator. Joe Biden wants to be a dictator in an entirely different way. And it will have some people who actually benefit. It has to do with prescription drugs. But let me get to the details of that in just a moment. First, welcome to the program and welcome to the conversation. If you want to join in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And if you happen to be a naysayer, you disagree with my point of view, we're going to put you right to the head of the line. I think that's equitable. Imagine that, saying you disagree with the host of the show. Yeah, you get a chance to make your best argument. Just stick around for a few of my questions, and we'll see where that one ends up. 866-439-5277. You can always send an email to me. We made the email address as easy as we could. Talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our Twitter poll as well. Twitter poll question, brand new one every single day. You know, I have to confess to you. I watched the first three GOP debates, even though the actual winner who's going to be the GOP nominee, Donald Trump, was not in any one of them. He wasn't on the debate stage last night either. Didn't need to be. It wasn't to his benefit. And so they let the uh, the also-rans debate instead. Vivek and Nikki and Chris and Ron. Uh, I watched the first three of them. I didn't watch last night's. I just figured I'm going to read what they had to say. I'll take a look at the video. Uh, who won last night's fourth GOP presidential debate? I would say that Donald Trump did. But I've given you all the options. Vivek, that's the way you say his name. Nikki, Chris, Ron, or Donald Trump. My vote would go for Donald Trump. Vote any way you like. You'll find the Twitter poll question on X or Twitter at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Always brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in, so I joined a long time ago. You can too. Just go to AMAC.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Now, yesterday, I'm amazed that we got even 10% voting on the losing side of this one. But I ask you, uh, the California so-called high-speed rail project, the one that's been going on for the last 15 years, that started with $9 billion. They got more billions out of the Obama administration, and now Joe Biden is going to give them $3 billion more. And one key thing about that high-speed rail in California, you ought to know, after 15 years and the better part of $15 billion already committed to the project, how much rail have they built? 
Have they built even one mile of rail? No, they haven't. So it's like most government projects. It involves a lot of money. It involves a lot of paychecks for union workers. But have they actually accomplished anything? No. And I said, should we cut our losses with California high-speed rail or fork out more funding? 90% of you join me in voting for cut our losses and get out 10%, believe it or not, naysayers said, uh, no, let's let's keep pouring money into it and see what happens. Glad to have you with me and glad to take your calls. I'll go to the call first because it's about this subject. I guess what the Biden administration has announced as of today. It is going to attempt to strip drug makers, pharma companies, of patents they hold for certain drugs if government officials deem the prices are too high. They announced a plan today. The government would claim the right to control the price on drugs developed with any taxpayer money whatsoever. And they claim without any evidence that the drug makers are gouging consumers with high prices and they plan to seize or I would call it nationalize certain drug patents. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Like when Venezuela decided to nationalize its oil industry and now they can barely produce oil. The country's going broke. And now Joe Biden is going to start with the pharma industry, which, by the way, I have no ties to the pharma industry. I take a couple of pharmaceuticals myself, but they're the cheap kind. But I got to tell you something. The idea that an American government in this country would seize control of the patents that are issued on anything. If they can seize the patents on drugs, what can't they seize the patents on? In any case, consider that. And a shout-out to our friends in Battle Creek, Michigan, who listen to Great Talk Radio on WBCK. That's FM 95.3, and you can find my show there as well. Let's go to Andy in the aforementioned Michigan. Hey, Andy, thanks for listening. What's on your mind? Hi, Lars. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. And uh, I don't think Joe is a dictator. I don't think Joe's really there. My far uh, bigger concern is the... uh, uh, the, well, the administration, I know he's the figurehead of it. Joe's not there. Joe doesn't, Joe doesn't matter. Uh, my, my real threat, or the real threat, I think, is, uh, is uh, everybody behind him and the momentum they want to they wanna push us toward. But it ain't Joe. Well, if you listen to this show, you know that I agree with you on that. Do I think Joe's actually calling the shots? The answer is no. Uh, do I believe Barack Obama is probably calling the shots? Yeah. The people who surround Joe in the White House are, for the most part, uh, leftovers from the Obama administration. And they're making Joe Biden's administration as as terrible for America as Barack Obama was. But let's say we could prove that to a certainty. How does it get us anywhere? Well, uh, with with uh, Joe, it doesn't really matter. No, it does. uh, I mean, because any any American president, Andy, could say, why, I got the job of presidency, but I'm not very good at foreign policy. So on foreign policy, I turned to one of my friends or associates over the years and I listened to their advice. Any president could do that. I would imagine that to some extent, every president does do that. I mean, no matter how smart they are, you know, even even Donald Trump probably turns to certain advisors and says, what do you think we ought to do with this? Should we let uh, Israel go ahead and extinguish the Hamas terrorists or should we let, should we tell them to back off? And he probably, I mean, smart, smart people do turn to people that advise them. So even if we could prove that Barack Obama was sitting in the basement of his house in Georgetown and sending orders to Joe Biden of what to say, knowing that or even being able to prove it doesn't actually get us ahead. We, we can't stop it. But 
when this guy, whether he's taking orders from someone else or doing it on his own, when he decides to nationalize parts of a major industry and steal patents and say, if you're selling something, we're going to seize the patent and then we're going to decide how much you're allowed to charge. Isn't that acting like a dictator? It is, but it's less about Joe. It's more about the system that he's in, in front of. It doesn't matter who is on that other side if we're not able to do what um it, it would matter if supposed. the person in the Oval Office told Barack Obama, I'm the president, you're not. I'm making the decision, you're not. Because the American people, you know, they didn't like Joe. That was a cheat. But the point is, the person actually carries out those illicit orders, he's still a problem. Andy, thanks for the call from Michigan. Back in a moment. Enough, Lars? Follow him on Twitter at Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And a little earlier in the week than usual, we're talking to our movie guy, Christian Toto, the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, because I wanted to get Christian's take on the passing yesterday of Norman Lear. At least we learned of it yesterday. Uh, Christian, welcome back. Oh, good to be back. Did you ever get a chance to meet Norman Lear? I didn't. I've heard nothing but good things about him from across the entertainment spectrum, from across the political spectrum. He certainly was progressive to the core and an activist, but his work speaks for itself. I mean, I, I grew up with all his shows in the 1970s. And, you know, uh, my old colleague, John Nolte at Breitbart, had a column today, and he said basically that the left would cancel Norman Lear today. And he's absolutely right. I mean, all the things he did, all the buttons he pushed, all the hard truths he shared, all the ways he made really flawed characters lovable and believable. None of those things are welcome on the left right now. So it, it is fascinating to read all the, the tributes from the left because it's <laughs> if the times were different, there'd be a different reaction. Yeah, because I never met the man either, but from a distance, I admired his creativity, even though, I mean, I enjoyed the shows, All in the Family, Maude, The Jeffersons, Archie Bunker's Place, Good Times, all of those. And, and yet... You're right. I mean, if you think about All in the Family, you make uh, Archie Bunker, you know, the, the person who's cast as this, you know, crazy guy sort of to the right who's always saying these things. But he was lovable. And in a lot of cases, I, I think even liberals uh, thought it was great when he would, uh, you know, he would call out the meathead, you know, because the meathead mm. was just uh, a dummy. Didn't seem to know what was going on. And and you're right. The, maybe it suggests something about today's uh, you know, the level of creativity you're allowed in woke America is going to forever limit uh, what you can actually do with it, even though by having those shows on, uh, you probably did make some difference. Yeah, you know, it, that's one of the main reasons why I've, I've written a book about the whole woke situation with Hollywood, why I rail against it so often. is because it limits storytelling. It limits the subjects that we can explore. And so often humor is the way to get into these challenging situations and to learn about them, to figure out how we feel about them, to understand different sides of a story, different sides of a character. And if you don't have that freedom, if you don't have that creative luxury, then you're missing out something. And I think that Norman Lear's body of work proves it. 
I mean, you had a story, shows like Sanford and Son. I watched all those when I was a kid. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Fernwood Tonight, which was very unusual, and America Tonight. But is there anybody on the scene today who, who could hold a candle to that kind of productivity? You know, Taylor Sheridan is giving him a run because he has a lot of different plates spinning. He certainly doesn't work in comedy. He's more of a drama guy, some action as well. But as far as, you know, uh, his hands in a lot of shows, uh, high quality of work, authentic storytelling, uh, different than your typical voice in, in the Hollywood landscape, I, I would get, I would say Taylor Sheridan, it's a, it's a bad matchup, but it's the only one who rushes to mind. Uh, you know, it's it, but Norman Lear is one of a kind, so that it's hard to even compare him to anyone. Well, and you kind of wonder what's going to happen now because when network television was what it was in Norman Lear's heyday in the seventies, it was really the only. You either went to the movies; there were no video, you know, home video machines or anything like that until later. Uh, and so you had the te- you had te- theaters you go see movies in. And that was very constrained, both economically and otherwise. And then you had TV, and the TV show was on, and you actually had appointment TV, which doesn't even exist today because mm-hmm. people can time shift. So there will never be another, I would think, another era like the 1970s for television because now the landscape is big, which is great. It's bigger and better uh, in the sense that you've got more product out there. But you didn't have the concentration of viewing where people could have appointment TV and every, I don't know, Tuesday night you'd be, you'd watch this show. And if you didn't watch it live on television, then you didn't see it at all. And yet your 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 whole community, the fellow classmates or, or you know, people at work would be talking about it the next day and you'd be out of the picture. So uh, that kind of phenomenon just doesn't exist. You know, and it also brought us together in a way. I, I just had the opportunity to speak to George Slaughter, who was the creator of Laugh-In. He's in his 90s. He's, he's ageless and funny and great conversation. It's on the new uh, Hollywood and Total podcast. And in his new book, he talks about Lily Tomlin, about how when she first met him, they connected. And when she first started doing Ernestine, the operator character, <laughs> the next yeah. day, people were, you know, talking to her on the street, recognizing her. Like, it, it was such a popular show. And everyone watched it. And like Archie Bunker, everyone watched it. And now the, the whole marketplace is so splintered. You know, even the biggest shows, maybe you know, Game of Thrones, things like that, it's still a fairly small amount of people who watch it compared to the you know, the, the 70s and 80s series. It's, it's just amazing how things change. And it's funny because we've tried to get liberals on this show, uh, Christian. We've had uh, Rob Reiner on the show before. And, and, and you know, it's, it, you know, not, not very often, but every once in a while. And it's interesting when liberals will actually talk to you. But I think they're kind of afraid of the confrontation uh, because you might ask them a tough question. Uh, let me ask you about this new movie called Poor Things. Is it, is it accurately described as a feminist Frankenstein? Yeah, absolutely. It is a Frankenstein story in that Willem Dafoe's character in the film creates a woman out of pieces. And of course, that woman is Emma Stone. But, you know, (laughs) the brain in question is not Abby normal a la young Frankenstein. (laughs) It's actually the brain of a younger person. So the creature he creates in Emma Stone gets to grow. She does start out grunting and and, and kind of like a Neanderthal. And then she gets more sophisticated, more evolved. She she becomes uh, almost manipulative of other people. Uh, she spouts philosophy. So it's a very clever twist on this whole concept. It's also very funny. I laughed a lot. You don't you know, laugh that much at the theaters these days. But, you know, it's clearly a feminist movie, and that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But the last third of the movie really puts it, it, it's just a very heavy-handed twist where you're thinking, okay, I got the message they were trying to send. It's wrapped up in a very compelling story, and Emma Stone is terrific. But why are you pressing so hard? Why are you lecturing us? It, it's a very frustrating experience. I still recommend it. It's very original. It's very unique. It's very interesting visually, and, and I guess, like I said, Stone is great, but it, it, it frustrates me as a moviegoer and as a critic to see filmmakers just push so hard to turn a movie that's really engaging into a TED Talk. Is that because they're afraid that if they don't really turn on the message full blast that they'll get they'll get blowback from it? Or do they think that actually sells it to audiences better if you say, oh, it's going to be the full immersive feminist message and, and you can't get away from it, as opposed to maybe a little more subtle approach that, that might leave people walking away thinking, well, you know, uh, I've had my point of view maybe changed or altered. Yeah, I don't know. It's a great question. I, I'd love to, you know, and it's so hard to ask a, an artist directly this question because I don't think they'd see it. You know, when you make art like this, you just you're so close to it. You're so intimately involved. It's hard to stand back and really judge it in a way that might be more helpful. It's just the nature of creativity. But I, yeah, it, it is maddening. I just see it more and more these days. And again, I thought I had no problem with a message in a movie. And when it's woven in in a very creative fashion, it often makes it more interesting. And I don't have to agree with it. It's just part of the tapestry. Wonderful. But why push it so hard? Why be a lecture? Why, why go so aggressively in that direction? And I, I think the recent Barbie movie had this similar problem. And, you know, you can send a message. You can have this concept. You can have this point of view. But when you mention the patriarchy again and again and again, it, it gets suffocating. Okay, so one last thing. Is there anything on the horizon for this month? This month's a good uh, month for holiday, uh, you know, as the holidays come up uh, for, for, for some big movies. Is there anything on the horizon coming up in the next 30 days? Yeah, very soon is Wonka, which is the prequel to the, uh, the Gene Wilder classic. We've got the Iron Claw, which is a very respectable look at this wrestling family that had lots and lots of tragedy. Uh, the new Aquaman film is coming soon. It's not really predicted to be a big blockbuster, but I always enjoyed Jason Momoa in that role. Uh, Maestro is coming soon to Netflix. I don't have the date at the top of my head, but I think it's in select, select theaters now, but it'll be streaming on Netflix very soon. And very curious to see that one. That's Bradley Cooper starring and directing. He's a pretty talented guy. So there's some interesting stuff. I don't, I can't qualify everything there. And a few I've seen, and I'm not allowed to say for embargo purposes, but some some titles you'll recognize and be curious about for sure. Oh, absolutely. Christian, thanks very much. That is Christian Toto from the Hollywood and Toto podcast. Coming up in a moment, today as America remembers the 82nd anniversary of Imperial Japan's devastating attack on Pearl Harbor, is the U.S. military setting itself up to confront a formidable threat from Asia? We'll get to that in your calls up next. The Lars Larson Show. men and the people who love them. Is your radio too far away? Just tell Alexa, play the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you on board. And if you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And today, America marks the 82nd anniversary of the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. And now the United States military confronts 
a more formidable threat from Asia. And I want to give you a few details of a great report that I saw come out today. But before I do that, let me grab some of your calls. If you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll. You can find the question at Lars Larson Show on X, and you can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. Randy, in California. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Lars. What's on your mind, sir? I was just curious of what your opinion was in regards to a standing or sitting president going out and campaigning for a second term while they're getting paid to, uh, you know, run the country. It's actually a question that applies to not just presidents, but to senators and members of Congress, members of the House. Uh, it applies to governors, state lawmakers, people like that, because they uh, part of the system assumes that if you're allowed to seek a second term or, or more terms, if you're a member of Congress, um, then then you're going to spend some time that the public says you're governor, but you're also running. And I don't know of a, pra- a good practical solution to say you can't spend all this time campaigning when we expect you to be on the job, because that sounds like that's your complaint. And I I understand it. But is it part of the system that we just have to accept that that's one of the costs of of having a system where people get a chance to cast votes to choose their leaders? Would there be a way to do it some other way that would still allow somebody, a president, to seek a second term, a senator to seek additional terms, rep, uh, any of those? without spending time on campaigning. Okay. I mean, can you think of a way to do it? Well, I mean, you know, the the job that the president or whoever we would be speaking of uh, is doing at the the moment in time, uh, if they're doing a good enough job and they're well-known, they got elected in the first place, chances are they're going to get reelected based on performance alone. They got elected in the first place. They're obviously well-known to the majority. And if they're doing an outstanding job, why not have them back? It's like an employee. I mean, well, it, you're going to keep it them is, around. But, good. Randy, what do you think would happen to uh, – now, Joe Biden's obviously an exception. He hasn't been successful at anything he's done. And I would challenge any naysayer to tell me something about the Biden presidency where he's been successful. In fact, it's funny because I see interviews on uh, short ones on Instagram and, and Twitter and places like that where they say, so you're going to vote for Joe Biden. What do you like that he's done? And, and most of the people are just stunned. They can't name a single thing, even though they say they're going to vote for the guy. But what do you think would happen to a, a president, an incumbent president with a good track record, who just said, I'd like a second term. I've told everybody I wanted, but I'm going to focus on the job. Vote for me if you want to. I think if you didn't campaign and go out and give speeches and raise money and do all the other things that are involved in campaigning, I think an incumbent might well lose. Yeah. Yeah, the only way I could see to fix that, Randy, because you couldn't really change it um, uh, by law or by having rules. But there are expectations in presidential campaign. For example, one of the things that they always wanted Trump to do was give up his tax returns. I, for the life of me, I couldn't understand why. I didn't think they were going to learn anything from them. But you know when that, that tradition began? It began after Spiro Agnew was convicted and later uh, won on appeal and was acquitted, as I recall. But he was vice president to Nixon. And, uh, and after that, it became a tradition 
that candidates would release their tax returns so you could know, do they have a dog in the fight? Do they have some bias of one kind or another? Because you got a chance to look at their finances. It never really produced that much valuable information for voters, but the public said, we want to see, and uh, the candidates accommodated them to a large extent. Now, Trump was, un- uh, you know, at that point, the IRS was still auditing him, and he had a good reason not to release uh, the returns. But uh, other than, say, Telling people we'd rather you didn't campaign, just do the job, and if you're good enough, we'll return you. But we're going to let your opponents, who'd like to take your job, uh, go out and campaign all they want. I can't imagine somebody who actually wants a second term saying, okay, I won't campaign. I don't know of any way around it. And, And the bigger gripe might be this. Think how much time Gavin Newsom, governor of your state, has been spending when he's not even yet running for president of the United States. He's clearly not doing a good job as governor. But once you're elected as as governor of California or in Ron DeSantis case, governor of Florida, and then you decide to spend a huge amount of your time campaigning to be some other job, which you may or may not even get. Um, I guess if the public was angry enough about it, uh, they would demand that that change. But I haven't seen that kind of anger. I think I think there are people who say, I'm glad, Mike. I'll bet the people in North Dakota are very glad, even though Doug Burgum just dropped out of the presidential race. He's a very smart guy. Uh, and I'd love to see him run for another office in some future time. He's out of this year's race or this race for 24. Uh, but but, you know, do you think the, the people of North Dakota resent that he took a lot of time away from doing the job of governor while he was on the road campaigning to be president? Nah, maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. But but how about I, I, like limits? Like we want to limit the uh, the term limits on on senators and congressmen and stuff like that. Uh, why not put a limit like you can only do X amount of hours or X amount of events or or X amount of speeches or, or kind of you know hone it in to where it's well, limited. You, you'd have to put it in the Constitution. Right now, there are three requirements to run for president, and there is a term limit on president. But there are only three requirements. And if you said, no, we want to add a bunch of hours and everything else, that good luck with that, because I don't think that's going to happen. But it could. Randy, thanks for the call. Hey, I want to reference the work of Harry Kazanis, who's with The New York Post. He said, as Americans pause to reflect on Imperial Japan's brutal attack on Pearl Harbor 82 years ago today, U.S. military faces an even bigger threat from Asia once again. And I want you to think about the thousands of lives that were lost in that Japanese sneak attack. And think about the things that brought it about when Imperial Japan was uh, engaging in all kinds of, of crazy stuff at the time. And we decided, we said, well, we're going to cut off. We're no longer supplying oil to you. And then they decided to attack the United States without any warning whatsoever. Well, right now there's evidence, he cites, that if China were to go to war against America, it would use the same strategy as Japan to try to achieve a quick and dirty victory, but with a modern twist, a massive bolt-from-the-blue attack that could, in not even a day, wipe out most of the military assets in the Indo-Pacific region and maybe even forever mark the end of the United States as a superpower. Again, this is Harry Kazanis writing in the New York Post. Um, And what he cites is... China has enough advanced missiles to not only destroy every U.S. military base in Asia very quickly, but also target and attack most U.S. Navy warships in the region. And Beijing has a -a one-of-a-kind missile platform designed to destroy U.S. naval aircraft carriers. 
And some experts have even declared such weapons make our supercarriers as obsolete as the battleships of the 20th century. So he questions, what is the Biden administration doing about it? And he said the sad reality is the U.S. defense community has widely discussed this style of attack. And Team Biden doesn't seem to be worried at all. Despite talking a good game, American defense officials continue to call China a pacing threat meaning a problem that can be managed as if the threat has not yet arrived. And yet China continues to this day to develop even more advanced weapons that make its missiles look tame by comparison. That's a big concern. The fact that the Biden administration seems to have checked out in terms of defense of America, and instead it wants to mess around in Ukraine, or maybe even by holding Israel back, from going after the terrorists of Hamas. Coming up, the federal government with its track record of failures, including burdening Americans with $34 trillion of debt. Should we roll it back now? That's next. And a real pleasure to welcome back to the program our friend Seton Motley, the president of the group called Less Government. Seton, welcome back. Hello, sir. How are you? Is there? I'm I'm doing well, except for the fact that I own a piece of the $34 trillion in debt that the United <laughs> States government has rolled up for us with another $2 trillion on the way under Joe Biden. And I guess the question is, can we ever get this government to, to dial things back? before we end up so so completely buried in debt that we can't see daylight? Well, I'm not – look, the, the, by law, and of course, less and less we adhere to the law in D.C. Tell me. By law, they're supposed, to pass, they're supposed to go through the budget process and pass 12 appropriations bills. They haven't done that since 1996. Which means we're still spending Obama's $878 billion stimulus every year, plus, you know, the CR, the continuing resolution add-ons, plus 3% here, plus 5% here, uh, let alone all the COVID spending that's, that's now built into the CRs. Because with the CRs, there's no discussion of any of the spending. There's no, it's just everything's ratified at, at current levels, plus percentages here and percentages there. That's that's the way they've been budgeting for almost three decades now. So they can't even pass a frick. And you and I talked about this. You and I both agreed that Kevin McCarthy had to go yep. for no other reason. Even if there was only one reason, it was that he controlled the House for the entire year and never went through the budget process. So th- that's that. all of that is to say... I'm not particularly confident that we're going to do this again because now we're about to do a supplemental, which is not the budget process, to waste more money on Ukraine and just waste, I think, waste money in, in, in Israel. I'm all for Israel, as I told you. I'm so pro-Israel I've applied for non-Gentile status. Um, but that doesn't mean we should be funding it. And now... Uh, I think you know Vicki McKenna, the radio host out of Wisconsin. Yep. She just sent me that Venezuela is preparing to invade Guyana, and we're pledged, the U.S. is pledging its unwavering support for Guyana. It's unwavering and, support with money we don't have and apparently weapons uh-huh. we no longer have because our stockpiles are so I, far and, down. And the, my, immediate the, res- yep. my, 
my my immediate response as to why, you know, because again, there's there's these border conflicts all over the planet, and you have to go, okay, why is DC choosing to care about this one? The the globalists have built up China to such a degree over 50 years with our money that it's now not very profitable to make stuff there anymore. So guess where they're going to move? India. They're going to build up India. Heaven forfend they return everything to the U.S. They're now going to move everything to India because India just surpassed China in, in total population. They're now the most populous nation in the world. Um, and they can build up India the way they built up China with super cheap labor. Now, guess what 40% of the population of South American Guyana is? Indian. <laughs> They're Wonderful. Indian diaspora. So what we're doing by pledging our unwavering support for Guyana in this irrelevant border skirmish is we're telling the Indians, hey, we like you guys, and we're going to help you out in Guyana in exchange for our moving our sweatshops into your country. Now, see, uh, but I don't even know how we get a handle on all this. We've got a domestic spending problem that Congress seems unwilling to, to take hold of. We've got a president who's extending us out in, in all these different ways that seem tremendously problematic. Uh, so we're going to end up at, at what? At war with, with Venezuela? While, while we're saying, but you'll still sell us oil, right? Um, and, and, and frankly, I'd love to see hey, all those. By the in- way, that's yeah. exactly like Russia. We'll be at war with you, but will you sell us oil? Keep going. Sorry. Right. And, and, but, but the other problem is, Getting industry to move back. I think there are people, and there are people who call the show and say, we should move all those industries back. And I said, unless you're talking about the U.S. government nationalizing all these industries, you can't make them move back. But what you could do is make America an attractive place to manufacture again. But what that's going to take is tax changes. Joe's going the wrong way on that. He wants us to have a higher tax rate than the Chinese communists charge. Uh, and then right. change some of the environmental rules. Well, the Greens are never going to let that happen. It's not that I don't think we should try. But if you say we can have our own rare earths produced here, but we have rules that make it too expensive to actually you know, do that here and process it right. here, it's cheaper to buy it from China. So how do we get all those things changed at once to make well, America and, and energy costs? How do, how do you make America attractive to do business in again or manufacture? I'm, I'm so optimistic about it. I move to Belize, Lars. <laughs> um, and speaking of the rare earths and, and China, uh, we're in Belize, which is directly across from West Africa, right? Yep. The Chinese are being so obnoxious in their mining of rare earths in West Africa and dumping chemicals and dirt and stuff into the ocean, into the Atlantic Ocean, and there's a big patch, a gigantic, I can't even, I can't overestimate the size of this uh, sargassum, under, it's, it's, it's basically seaweed, and yeah. it's under, uh, under the water, and it's this giant reef of sargassum, and they're dumping all of this crap into the ocean. It's sawing off all the sargassum, and it's washing up on our shores here in Belize. So I would very much like to set up a situation where we could re- return it to the U.S. for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is, as has been often discussed, we're a little daintier with the environment than the communist Chinese are. <laughs> Yeah, but could could we get a Goldilocks solution where you want to have tough environmental rules, but if they're too tough, 
then you then you're just not doing the activity at all anymore there. So you've made it impossible to manufacture here. And people say, well, right. just charge more. Well, you know, Seton, I love to give the example since we're in the fall, at least in my neck of the woods, it's cold. And so you wear a flannel shirt. You can buy Made in America flannel shirts anywhere from about $75 to $150. And people say, that's insane. I can get a flannel shirt at Walmart for $12. And sometimes I buy some flannel shirts at Walmart, but they're made in China or probably one of these days, uh, believe. And again, this has been, you know, you can't turn the Titanic on a dime. What happened was when, when, when Nixon first went to China and started this process, what happened was we turned American or what were American businesses, although they're still they're not they're not re, reincorporating in China. They're they're still incorporated in the U.S. They're just doing most of their business in China and overseas. And what they did was they turned those businesses from from advocates for less government domestically in the U.S. to advocates for more government because it helps them because it hurts their competitors that are operating in the U.S. Absolutely right. That's Seton Motley, president of Less Government. Seton, thanks very much. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out our Instagram feed and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Conspiracy Theory Thursday. And imagine this conspiracy. Donald Trump is in court right now. And he's filed notice in a federal court in Washington, D.C. And what is he saying he's going to do? Uh, His lawyers on behalf of him. He's appealing a ruling that found at a lower court level that he is not immune from criminal prosecution. I actually think there's a good argument that he should be on this particular case. But let me get into the details of that in just a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to jump into what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at LarsLarson.com. You can call 8... uh, 866-439-5277. If you happen to be a naysayer, well, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And don't forget, we put up a brand new question every day. We call it the Twitter poll. I guess we're going to have to change the name to X now. The X poll, who won last night's fourth GOP presidential debate? And we've given you all five options. Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, uh, Ron DeSantis from Florida, or Donald Trump, who wasn't even there for the debate. But I think he pretty well won in last night's debate. 
You can find today's Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined a long time ago. You should, too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Now, let me tell you about the gist of this case. I'm not a lawyer, but I followed this closely. I think this is headed for the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, what's going to happen? Donald Trump is being charged or has been charged that he conspired to obstruct Joe Biden's 2020 election victory. I don't believe Joe Biden got an election victory, but that's a subject for another day. So Donald Trump's legal team says the charge should be thrown out for two reasons. Number one, his lawyers say he enjoyed immunity as president of the United States. And that's when he made the charges. Second, they're saying charging him with trying to block the election results violates the legal principle of double jeopardy because Donald Trump was already acquitted at his congressional impeachment for his conduct leading up to the events on January 6, 2021. So under those cases, it'll go to the appeals court. Donald Trump may win at the appeals court level. Probably not. He may well lose, but then it throws it to the U.S. Supreme Court. And if that happens, they'll have to rush up the trial and get some kind of result before the presidential election in November of next year. And that's quite a challenge. In any case, glad to have you with me on a Thursday. I'll be glad to get to your calls as well. Let me go first to Doug. Hey, Doug, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind tonight? Uh, Thank you, Lars, for taking my call. I appreciate it. Um, I'm learning about fasting and crying, the the tremendous health benefits of fasting and crying. It's eliminating uh, various foods and then allowing the deep emotional pain to come out through tears. And there's scriptural support for it. Uh, If you look at Joel 2.12, it talks about, Return to me even now, says the Eternal, wholeheartedly with fasting and weeping and crying. And I'm finding fasting and crying is tremendously, uh, it's improving my health wonderfully. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, It's not something that I would necessarily embrace, but okay, it works for you. That's all you wanted to comment on? Okay. Yes, thank you. You betcha. I'm glad for the call. I don't know. I think if somebody made me, I mean, I'm a type 2 diabetic, so I have to be careful with what I eat anyway. But if somebody said, now you can't eat at all, you have to fast for a while, I might end up crying just because of that. Let's go to Adele. Uh, 866-439-5277. Naysayers always go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Let's go to Dell. Hey, Dell, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, um, I, I have a quick question. So I have a Hispanic sure. family. Um, they had to pull their six-year-old out of school today because, uh, because uh, sorry, I'm juggling my baby when I call. But, I understand. Um, they, had to pull their, they had to pull their six-year-old out of uh, school today. And um, actually, I think it's been about four days they pulled her out. Uh, my friend uh, talked to me about it. And so I'm just trying to figure out the best advice that I could give her because, Apparently, their PE teacher was trying to teach the six-year-old to have a boyfriend. And, um, you know, we're not with all that that stuff. When you say to have a boyfriend, what what exactly do you know what the PE teacher said to the child? Yeah, apparently um, the... uh, 
the uh, six-year-old was uh, asking his friend to play sports, and the PE teacher was trying to encourage that that was his boyfriend and to let his boyfriend participate in the sport. Hmm. That sounds strange. So, why, why in the world would any adult teacher t- talk to a kid about boyfriends or girlfriends when it comes to playing sports? What's the connection? Yeah, and that's what I'm thinking is, um, uh, so, you know, with all this stuff that's going on in schools right now, um, with them, uh, this, this uh, gender stuff that's going on, um, we're lucky enough that he came home and told uh, her mom, his mom, what happened. And so she pulled him okay. out of school right away. Now, now I got to ask you something. Did mom go and talk to the teacher? And say, what exactly did you say to my child? And did the mom then go to the principal of the school and, uh, and you know, object to that if it was something objectionable? Have you heard what the teacher had to say? Um, I haven't. And, I, I, and I'm also, that's uh, part of my question, is wondering if that would be the best route to take because, you know, they're real sympathetic towards uh uh, that type of stuff in school. Well, they uh, are, but but the first, I think your due diligence has, especially with a six-year-old. If this was a 16-year-old who came home and told mom and dad, by the way, the teacher said this to me, you might, you know, but with kids, uh, I don't know whether or not a six-year-old would, would, let's see, accurately describe what it was that the teacher had to say. So I'd at least give okay. the teacher the benefit of the doubt of, of asking them, what did you talk to my child about? What did you say to my child? My child says you you were you, you were telling him about boyfriends or girlfriends. What did you actually say? Hear the teacher's side of it, and and then maybe go back to your child and say, "Are you sure that what you heard was about boyfriends and girlfriends?" I would I would do all that due diligence before you go to the principal. And if you decide as a parent the teacher was talking to my child about something that was inappropriate, especially sexually in, inappropriate. Then you talk to the principal, right. and when the prince, if the principal doesn't give you some kind of satisfaction, then you go to the superintendent of schools. I know this sounds like a process, but you'd be building a case. I complained to the right. teacher. The teacher said he admitted that he said things that were out of line. Then you go to the principal. Then you go to the superintendent, and if they don't give you satisfaction, then you go to the school board and you say. I've got a principal and a superintendent and a teacher who all back up the idea of telling my kids things that they should not be telling them at that at that age and take your take your complaints to the elected people that you elected to the school board. Thanks for the call, Dale. Back in a moment. The mainstream media published articles this week claiming the NRA is slowly dying. Are their reports accurate or is it still a formidable force when it comes to lobbying on behalf of the Second Amendment? Talk about it next. Exercising the right to free speech every day. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I got to tell you something. I have a dog in the fight. I'm a member of the NRA. Uh, there have been times where I've disagreed with the NRA about things, but I, I do have a bias in favor of the organization. And I saw the same reports that I think Bob Barr, a friend, former CIA analyst and former member of Congress, newly elected first vice president of the board at the NRA. So he's got a bias as well. But when I saw the report saying the NRA is dying on the vine, 
I thought, well, it'd be a good idea to talk to Bob about it, who's been writing about it at the Daily Caller. Bob, welcome back. Well, thank you, Lars. Great to be with you, and uh, thank you very much for your support of the NRA and uh, all of us, uh, over 4 million members, well over 4 million members uh, who are dues-paying members and the many, many millions more Americans who support uh, not just the NRA, but the right to keep and bear arms uh, that uh, you know, is given to us by our creator and uh, guaranteed to us uh, by our uh, Constitution, our Bill of Rights. And that's an important distinction, that they are God-given rights. The Constitution doesn't grant rights. It merely says to the government, don't mess with the rights of those, ina- those inalienable rights that your citizens enjoy. So what about this charge that the NRA is dying and cannibalizing itself? What's that all about? It, it's, it's not really new. I mean, we see this, and you see it all, all the time. Uh, I think one of the reasons why we're seeing it right now, perhaps a little bit more than than usual, uh, is because uh, we're kind of, we're bumping up against a very, very important pair of cases in which the NRA is involved. Uh, one of them uh, is, as you and I have talked about this in the past, the uh, attorney general in New York, uh, when she ran for office uh, five years ago, uh, said the NRA, uh, which is chartered in New York under nonprofit law for 150 years, is a terrorist organization that she's going to take down. So we've been fighting that for the last uh, four years now. Uh, that is uh, coming up in a, uh, a trial uh, in January. So I think the left is worried about that, uh, losing that. And there's also another case that I think we've talked about that is currently before the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, they've taken it uh, to, uh, to decide uh, this coming uh, spring, uh, which uh, basically stands for the proposition that the insurance regulator in New York, and by extrapolation every other case, that abuses their power uh, to go against an organization with whom they disagree, that is a First Amendment case, uh, the Supreme Court has taken that case in which uh, we're the main uh, party, but uh, our uh, co-counsel on that case, Lars, will be the ACLU. Uh, so the ACLU and the NRA together fighting uh, for the, uh, the the free speech rights uh, of the NRA against government regulatory abuse. You know, I always knew there would come a time when the American Civil Liberties Union would actually take the right side of something. They used to do that all the time. They don't so much lately. And, in fact, I've kidded people at the, at the ACLU saying, you guys are in favor of all civil rights except my Second Amendment rights. And they, they say they don't take on too many cases involving Second Amendment. But on this, in this case, if they're taking the right side of them, that's great. But how do they even cobble up this case? And you said you've been in politics. You see politicians who say, oh, my opponent's on the skids. He's headed for defeat. Well, I, I, I would agree. There are a lot of campaigns that run based on that. But, but do they have any kind of merit at all to suggest that the NRA is losing its membership or losing its, uh, its clout? No, and, and what they what they do the, the the couple of articles that I referenced uh, that you might have seen uh, was uh, Newsweek uh, that the NRA is slowly dying, and Rolling Stone the NRA is cannibalizing itself. Well, part of the reason that uh, we have had to adjust our priorities in our, in our spending is because of these legal challenges. It is very very expensive 
to uh, have lawyers in New York, and we have some very good lawyers in New York that are representing us uh, against the Attorney General. It's very expensive, and when we have to pay out huge sums of money to defend ourselves against that sort of regulatory abuse, well, uh, that means we have less money to spend on other things. It's not cannibalizing. It's just readjusting our priorities in terms of the threats. The other thing that uh, I think it's new, was Newsweek sort of latches onto is uh, the fact that, uh, well, our membership is down. Well, our membership fluctuates like almost every other organization, I suspect, like the ACLU, for example. Uh, coming out of COVID, uh, our membership was down. Now we're coming back. But uh, the funniest thing that I noticed in one of those uh, two articles, they, they say, well, uh, for the 10 years between 2003 and 2013, uh, the NRA uh, had 230 legislative victories, and now they don't have many. Well, I actually <laughs> went back to our legislative people, and I said, give me the facts on this. And they did. They calculated that over the most recent 10-year period up to this time, we've had almost the exact same number of legislative victories. Uh, so even by you know, the metric of these anti-firearms uh, opinion pieces, it falls apart when you look at the actual facts. So you do that, your listeners do, but you know, these are other organizations, these news organizations, they don't care about the facts. But I thought I'd point, out, uh, point them out. Anyway, well, and they may be a little bit scared right now, Bob, because the odds on favorite to win the Republican nomination, and I think he will, is Donald Trump. And then according to the polls, Real Clear Politics, their average of polls says Trump will probably beat Biden as of today by about three percentage points, which would be a healthy victory. Now, I know uh, I think the Democrats are going to try to cheat. But in Donald Trump, one of the things I was so pleased to see in the fall of uh, 2015, before he ran the first time, was that he gave a full-throated defense of Americans' right to own guns, to keep guns in their homes, and to carry guns. And he said that, you know, if the Congress, which they didn't because of Paul Ryan, but if the Congress had passed that bill to allow nationwide reciprocity for concealed carry permits, the same way we have nationwide reciprocity for driver's licenses, for goodness sake. I mean, if I want to drive down to your state, if I want to drive to Georgia, I don't have to stop and see, well, does my driver's license apply in all the states between my house and Bob's house? You know, as I drive a couple of thousand miles, you don't even think about it. You say, of course, my driver's license works in every state. Well, that's not true of concealed carry permits. Trump said he would support that as well. And I haven't seen a president, maybe going back to Reagan, who's uh, uh, who was willing to give that full-throated defense of Second Amendment rights. And I think they're scared to death. He's going to end up president again, and and then they're going to have a whole new fight on their hands. They they will, and uh, your analysis is absolutely on point. Uh, Reagan was the last president that was a strong, vocal, open, unashamed supporter of the Second Amendment. Uh, the Democrats haven't been, and the two Bushes were sort of lukewarm uh, at best about it. No kidding. Uh, but uh, President Trump uh, has been a very, very strong, open supporter of the Second Amendment and what it stands for. And I agree with you. I think the left, for Second Amendment reasons alone, is absolutely scared, you know what, Liz, that he will get in. Yeah, because think about it, Bob. Think about all the wins we've had. 
you know, 30 years ago, we didn't have every state that had concealed carry. Uh, 30 years ago, we didn't have uh, Bruin. We didn't have Heller, all these Supreme Court decisions. And we had, and today I think we have, don't we have 27 or 28 constitutional carry states where you don't even need a piece of plastic in your wallet to be able to carry a gun? All of that has been in favor of people's exercise of their Second Amendment. All of that was much less 30 years ago, much more today. So I know the left would love to portray themselves as winning the war against people's rights to keep and bear arms. But I think on on the actual results, the NRA is winning. The NRA uh, and, uh, you know, we have a number of sister organizations uh, out there in your neck of the woods, the uh, Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms, yep. the Second Amendment Foundation. Uh, the NRA is the, uh, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in this fight, but there are a lot of other organizations uh, that uh, that have uh, been very, very helpful winning these legislative battles. And they'd simply want to convince everybody that the NRA is dying on the vine. That is the first vice president of the board at the NRA, Bob Barr, former CIA analyst, former member of Congress. Coming up in a moment, is your retirement savings feeling the squeeze under Bidenomics? We'll talk about that. The coming Lars up next. Larson Show. the sound of freedom. Here's Lars Larson. Let me just be real clear. We get into the holiday seasons. We've actually have seen a decrease in eggs, in bacon, in milk uh, since last year. So we are seeing lowering costs as we're going into the holiday season. As people are going uh, to do some holiday shopping, we're seeing uh, lowering costs in, in TVs and things that people need to think about as, as they want to give a gift that is Corinne Jean-Pierre, and boy, does she earn her paycheck. She has to defend the indefensible of the White House. I'm not the biggest fan of KJP, but when she stands there at that podium in the White House briefing room and tries to sell the idea, hey, things are looking better under Joe Biden, except you'll notice it's always, well, it's better this year than last year. Why? Because if you go back to the beginning of the Biden administration in January of 21 and use that as the benchmark, Things are terribly worse. The cost of housing is up. The cost of rent is up. The cost of interest. The interest rates, while they've dipped down a little bit in the last couple of weeks, if you want to buy a house, you're going to pay more than double what you would have paid in interest on that mortgage than you would have paid on the day that Joe Biden became, sadly, the president of the United States. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Conspiracy Theory Thursday. Uh, and if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's always right here at uh, uh, 866-HEY-LARS. Uh, naysayers always go to the head of the line. Uh, we always put you up first if you disagree with me. And that's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. But this is what Joe Biden has been doing. He's trying to sell Americans on the idea that Bidenomics has been one of the best things that ever happened to Americans. He acts as though things were terrible when he arrived. Well, I want to remind you, gasoline nationwide average was $2.38 a gallon 
on the day he took the oath of office. And it had been low during the Trump presidency. So you say, where is it now? Well, it's about 50 percent higher nationwide average. Now, I know that some of you might say, well, Lars, in my neck of the woods, it's higher than that or lower than that. I'm talking about the national average. That's the way to compare these things. What was it when he took office? What is it today? And all Karine Jean-Pierre wants to talk about is, well, it's lower than last year. Yeah, you mean because Joe Biden's actions against the oil industry, declaring that he was happy to put the oil business out of business, that that he drove the prices up so high that we got all the way up to close to 9% inflation. And now he wants to consider it a victory now that it's down in the middle threes without saying, yeah, it's middle threes. It's about 75% higher overall than inflation was running when he became president. As I said, gasoline is up, groceries are up, rents up, interest rates are up. Uh, mortgages are up. Everything is up. But according to Karine Jean-Pierre and the president, oh, everything is going just fine. Then consider this. Daily Caller Foundation has a great little study in which they took a look at retirement savings. Now, why? Because all of us, I mean, I've had to worry about retirement savings since I was in my 20s and 30s. You try to put as much away as much money as you possibly can early on. Why? Because there's a time value to money. Putting a $1,000 away in your 20s is going to mean a whole lot more in your 60s than putting it away in your 40s or your 50s. Well, guess what? Under President Joe Biden, retirement savings have taken a massive hit. And here's what Daily Caller came up with in terms of the numbers. When both declining real stock indexes and high inflation are factored in, the value of Americans' 401ks has declined $33,000 in real dollars, or about one quarter, 24.8%, since Joe Biden took office in January of 21. Now, factor that in against all the predictions made When Donald Trump was first elected to his first term in office, the liberals said Wall Street is going to crash. The economy will go into recession. Trump will take us to war. No, actually, all those things are happening under Joe Biden. When he took office, the average 401k retirement plan, because of the declines, has lost about $17,000 since Joe Biden first took office in January of 21 or about 12.7%. That's about a trillion dollars lost for Americans when you add all those retirement accounts together. Now, what's also happened? Inflation hit a peak in June of last year at 9.1%. It is now at about 3.2% for October. But as I said, that's about 50%, almost 60% higher than the Federal Reserve's target of 2% inflation. And the amount in pension funds for Americans increased by $500 billion since Biden took office. But due to inflation, it actually declined about 12% in real dollars. And the real dollars are what matter. I mean, when you get to retirement, depending on where inflation has been running, What does it matter how many dollars you have in the account? What matters is what can you buy with it? And they calculate a loss of about $3.3 trillion. So your taxes are higher, your cost of living is higher, and the amount of money you've got put away for retirement has gone down. And retirement accounts on bond markets got just shellacked 
uh, because of a poor performance under Joe Biden, especially last year, which was the worst year for municipal bonds since 1928. American savings overall have taken a huge hit, a decline in consumer spending that accounts for about 70 percent of our GDP. Americans collectively held about three quarters of a trillion dollars in savings in October. Do you know how much they had in May? A trillion dollars. So it's a gigantic hit there as well. And even further from the nearly six trillion dollars that Americans held in April of 2020. So while we were still enjoying the after effects of the Donald Trump economy and right before the election in November, Americans had six trillion dollars. Today, they've seen their retirement savings go all the way down to seven hundred and sixty eight billion dollars. So we've got all those effects coming together all because of Joe Biden's bad economy. Now, I want I want to point something out to you. Joe Biden, for a time, was running around America giving speeches, extolling the virtues of Bidenomics. Guess what happened then? In the last month, Karine Jean-Pierre has not mentioned Bidenomics not one time. And why would she stop talking about Bidenomics? Because things aren't looking so good. Bidenomics did not sell. Most Democrats have backed off from even mentioning it. It is a disaster. And you need to understand that because this is the kind of thing that's likely to have an effect on you and your family going forward. Factor it in when you decide who you want to vote for next year. Now, let's go to uh, uh, our best email of the day. And that, of course, comes from Brian. Uh, Brian writes in, Lars, Harvard, MIT, and the presidents of UPenn are not being able to condemn speech calling for the genocide of Jews is just the latest example of the position that many have taken. Context is and intent is needed. In this case, speech isn't violence. They say that action is actually needed for them to take a stand. And he's absolutely right. The presidents of those universities have said, well, People can talk about all these things that are anti-Semitic, but until they actually act on them on campus, we don't consider that something we have control of. And then he says the border, men and women's sports, green energy, our current education system, COVID, Ukraine, and on and on. In all those examples, my views and opinions would have been considered some kind of violence in some way, shape, or form. The context and my intent don't seem to matter, nor do the facts and logic of my arguments. The lack of consistency is absolutely out, uh, uh, astounding. Glad to have your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll as well. Who won last night's fourth GOP presidential debate? Was it Vivek, Nikki, Chris, Ron, or Donald John Trump? Coming up, we'll talk to our friend John Solomon at Just the News. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening because you like what you hear, right? Lars Larson. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you and always a pleasure to welcome back to the program our friend John Solomon, political commentator and the guy who founded JustTheNews.com. And just in time, John, the story's breaking out everywhere (laughs) that it looks like Hunter Biden already facing criminal gun charges is now and he's entered a not guilty plea. So there'll be a trial at some point or a a plea deal cut, cut or something. But now he's got more tax charges coming against him, and these are criminal as well? Uh, that is what the reports are right now. Uh, we have told, we've talked to two people who say they've been briefed that this indictment is imminent, whether it will be tonight or tomorrow or soon. Uh, there is another indictment apparently planned for Hunter Biden, and it will involve tax evasion charges. Not surprising, given that uh, a plea deal had been in place where they were going to accuse him of some uh, tax violations. Uh, the plea deal fell through. It's not un- un- uncommon for a prosecutor then when the plea deal goes through to file the charges. Uh, we hear it's going to be in the uh, California district, so the Los Angeles federal court. Uh, it could be as early as tonight. It could be early next week, but it's uh, in the next few days is what people who've been briefed on it are telling us. Now, all of this is coming, and it's got political implications uh, for the president sure. as well. I'm kind of curious. Do you have any sense of how the tri- how the uh, the whole trial process is on this is going to go? Is Hunter Biden going to try to push this off past next November, if that's even possible, to benefit his dad, or is it better if he if he pu- if he pushes it back and is still hanging out there as Americans go off to vote in the fall of next year? It's a great question. I mean, there's a political calculation for the president, you know, the president and his reelection uh, team. But oftentimes courts don't care about that. Right. They march to their own drum. Prosecutors march to their own drum. He'll have a couple options. One is to reengage in on uh, uh, plea deal discussions since there had been an earlier set. Uh, a second is uh, to try to delay through appellate issues and others to litigate this. Uh, a third is to just ask for a speedy trial and try to get it all done and, and roll your dice with a jury in California that's probably going to be heavily Democratic since California is a very Democrat state. Uh, all of those are on the table. I think we have a lot more to wait and see. First off, we need to know the nature of the charges, right? What do they allege? Do they allege anything involving President Joe Biden himself? Tomorrow, we will report that uh, banks uh, filed at least six suspicious activity reports that listed Joe Biden's house as the source of suspicion. The charges involved suspected money laundering and human trafficking, and the total dollar amounts that were attached on those uh, uh, suspicious activity reports that listed Joe Biden's home in Wilmington, where Hunter Biden was staying at the time, uh, totaled about $12 million of transactions. Uh, President Joe Biden's home Uh, was certainly viewed by banks as a possible crime scene, potential crime scene for money laundering and human trafficking based on the suspicious activity reports. That further shows that Joe Biden is a lot more implicated in this and intricated in this uh, than uh, he has led us on to believe for the last four years. Well, it it probably has tax law consequences as well, although they're not going to bring tax charges against a sitting president, but it might might hit him if he's no longer employed at the White House after January of of, uh, 25. I mean, I only bring that up because 
John, all of these, you and I have talked about the skepticism that both of us have, that when Joe Biden said, you know, I get a $200,000 check from my brother James, but he was just paying me back for some money that I loaned him. Uh, the skepticism that Joe Biden never had hundreds of thousands of dollars to loan and that these were phony loans. Yeah. And you would think that the, that the IRS would look at that and say, we're not going to buy that baloney. You show us the paperwork on that loan and show where you loaned your brother 200000 Otherwise, we're going to consider this $200,000 of undeclared income, which, John, uh, early on when I was about 17 or 18, I always paid somebody else to do my taxes. They weren't that complicated. But I had one <laughs> right. young lady or a young man say to me, Lars, if you overstate your deductions, that's something you can deal with. Don't ever fail to declare income. That's a crime. You can go to prison. And I took that to heart. If Joe Biden failed to declare a couple of hundred thousand dollars in income and tried to hide it as a scheme to say, oh, my brother was just paying me back. The IRS ought to be all over this as well, except can we expect that in a Biden administration? Uh, to be determined, right? These are very big issues. And I think the first thing is to give the benefit of the doubt to the Biden family. Let's see what the body of evidence is. We know what the IRS agents have told Congress. There was a pretty compelling case that Hunter Biden wasn't paying his taxes for years and often tried to disguise income as loans. That's what the whistleblowers allege. Uh, let's see what uh, David uh, Weiss, the special counsel, actually alleges. How long does he allege it goes on? And one of the questions that legal experts, including Hunter Biden's own team, have wondered about is, will they try to tie the tax charges into a foreign lobbying scheme? Meaning he was trying to hide the fact that he was conducting foreign lobbying by disguising income as loans so that people wouldn't know he's a foreign lobbyist. That is one of the theories. Because you have to register, right? That's right. Yep. And of course, that might have been embarrassing to the Biden family during the time that Obama was president. We don't know. And again, uh, unlike Donald Trump, who never got the benefit of any doubt, we should wait and see what the evidence is. But when you look at what the IRS whistleblowers have said, and when you look just last week, look at what uh, uh, the bombshell that James Comer dropped last week. There is a suspicious activity report from a bank in which the bank said the money flowing to Hunter Biden from China looked like money laundering. And it looked like an effort by the Chinese government to gain influence with his father through giving money to the son, giving money to Hunter Biden to influence the father. That's what a bank saw in real time looking at the financial transactions. Let's see if the prosecutors go there with this indictment. Well, and and let me ask you this, John. When, When that bank examiner wrote the report, correct me if I'm wrong, it was 2018, wasn't it? Uh, it was. Yeah, it was okay, a year so, after the transaction occurred in 2018. It was in the middle of the Trump administration. Right. But it also means Joe Biden was a private citizen at the time. And his son has always yeah. been a private citizen, except the one day he was in the Naval Reserve till they kicked him out for cocaine. So in that case, what excuse would there be for the IRS to ignore or for the banking authorities to ignore a report that says there may be money laundering going on involving private citizen Joe Biden? Yeah, a great question. Now, we do know that uh, Joe Biden was on many people's shortlist to run for president in 2020. So he was a presidential candidate in waiting in the public's fascination, right? Maybe that entered into the equation. We just don't know why so many agencies look back. And let's remember, I first reported a couple months ago that the first uh, bank reports raising concerns about Joe Biden, Hunter Biden were filed in 2015 um, uh, by a bank in 2016. The bank examiner didn't feel like enough was being done by the federal government. He filed a whistleblower complaint with the Securities and Exchange Commission, something I've made public. Um, 
So there were warning signs in 15, 16, 18, 19 when the laptop comes in the FBI's position, and then 2020, the uh, informant that comes in for the FBI. Five years of warning and no action by federal agencies. Yeah, because the Biden family enjoys the kind of protection that most mobsters could only dream of. John, thanks very much. Good to be with you. Thank you. That, that is John Solomon from Just the News. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. As you might remember, uh, we got the news of the shooting at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, UNLV, and uh, we didn't know much about it the first day. But what it has now turned out to be is that the three people who were killed at UNLV uh, were killed by a man who is now dead himself, but he was a professor, a college professor, who taught in a couple of other states and then applied for a job but was not hired at UNLV, and that seems to be the proximate cause of his uh, his mass murder. But I thought we'd talk about this subject with our friend Dr. John Lott. He's president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. Now, I serve on the board of directors, uncompensated, uh, but uh, but willingly, because I think uh, Crime Prevention Research Center does a lot of good, and there are no other institutions doing what Dr. John Lott does. He's the author most recently of a number of books, including More Guns, Less Crime. Dr. Lott, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you. First thing I thought of uh, when I heard about this shooting at UNLV is that I would have guessed generically most college campuses in America are gun-free zones. UNLV is almost entirely gun-free with a couple of little exceptions, but largely gun-free. And this puts it right in that category of most dangerous places in America, doesn't it? Would you mind explaining to my my audience why gun-free zones are so dangerous? Sure. Well, there are 12 states that uh, mandate that uh, public universities have to allow people with permanent concealed handguns uh, on their campuses. Uh, There's another 20 uh, that leave it up to the individual schools, but kind of knowing where kind of universities go politically, it's not too surprising to know that very few of them actually allow people to be able to go and carry. And then there are places uh, the rest of the states just completely ban it. There's no option there. Unfortunately, I, I testified before the Nevada State uh, House uh, a couple of years, a few years ago, when the last time the Republicans controlled uh, the the House there uh, for a bill that would have uh, kind of allowed people to be able to go and carry on uh, on campus, and you know it didn't go anyplace, uh, and you know it's not too surprising that you've had another attack at this place. Anybody who's read 
the diaries and manifestos for these mass murderers know that time after time after time, they explicitly talk about why they picked the target that they did. You know, we had the Nashville uh, mass murder earlier this year uh, at the Covenant School. Uh, in their diary, according to the Nashville police chief, they had had another target as their primary target, but had decided a mall, but they decided not to go after that once they realized that people were allowed to carry guns at that place and they had security there. Uh, you see the the Buffalo mass murderer last year. He goes into great detail about why he wanted to pick the target that he did. And right up there at the top, he wanted to go to a place where he knew his victims weren't going to be able to go and defend themselves. These guys may be crazy in some sense, but they're not stupid. Their goal is to get media coverage. And they know that the more media coverage that they're going to be able to get, the more uh, the, the more people they kill, the more media coverage they're going to be able to get. And they know if they go to a place where their victims are defenseless, uh, they're going to be more successful. You may have one police officer in a, in a school or someplace, but they have an almost impossible job. If you have somebody in uniform, the, the killers have a huge tactical advantage. They could either wait for that single person in uniform to leave the area before they attack or they can move on to another target where they don't see somebody there protecting them. Or if they decide that they really want to attack that area, who do they think they take out first? Having one person in uniform is kind of like having that person wearing a neon sign that says, shoot me first. And none of that makes, I mean, the fact that, that I remind people all the time, John, I tell them, uh, Dr. John Lott has come up with a number that says about 94% of mass shootings happen in places that are labeled as gun-free, even though, as a as a percentage of the entire landscape of America, virtually all of the country is not gun free. It's only a very right. small part of it that is labeled as gun free. And yet those gun free zones tend to be the most dangerous places where most of the mass shootings happen. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you go to most right to carry states, you may have a couple percent of the area where you're going to hit um, ban people being able to carry guns for protection. But if you look at mass public shootings where four or more people are killed, uh, not part of some other crime like a robbery or a gang fight over drug turf, uh, where somebody's going in with the express purpose just to go and kill and harm as many people as you can, those overwhelmingly, as you say, about 94% of those attacks occur, even though they make up such a tiny area of, of the states. You know, see, you'll see things like an attack at a, a movie theater or a mall. You know, and you'll find, okay, maybe there was only one movie theater in the area that was posted. Well, the guy went there or one mall that was posted as banning it. The guy went there. And at some point, you know, even if you want to go and discount uh, the, the explicit statements, which the media just refuses, I just don't understand. You would think it would be newsworthy for the media to once in a while mention why these murders explain why they picked the target that they did, but you will search in vain. You know, on our website at crimeresearch.org, we have a collection of many of these cases where these, where these mass murders have explicitly talked about why they picked the targets that they did. And, you know, you think it'd be newsworthy. Well, but, you think then, in the same way, Dr. Lott, I know people say, well, you don't expect uh, reporters to be out uh, being advocates for one side or the other. Well, they are. 
I mean, I, it's very routine in America to hear a report of a house fire and no working smoke detectors were found or working smoke detectors were found, especially if somebody's hurt. If there's a car crash, you'll routinely hear police believe that alcohol or right. drugs were involved or police say that no seat belts were being used by the occupants of the car who got badly hurt. You put those well, elements in because they make a difference the, to the outcome of the story. Yeah, look. I, I, you know, they go often the initial news reports about how the person obtained the gun or what guns were used are often wrong. Uh, I, I don't know. Some years ago, uh, I was talking to some editors at Fox and I was saying, why don't you guys mention this in the stories that these attacks keep on occurring in these gun free zones? And they said, well, you, you have to get it to us right away. You have to get it to us within the news cycle, not like a day later or something. So I put in a lot of effort and got them examples of cases when they occurred that they had occurred uh, in, in gun-free zones. But then they never fixed the story. And the explanation I got back was essentially what you were saying, that, well, it would just be political for them to go and include that. And I said, look, why is that any more or less political than than the story mentioning how you think they obtained the gun? Absolutely right. Dr. John Lott from the Crime Prevention Research Center, author of More Guns, Less Crime. Dr. Lott, thank you very much. Back in a moment, we'll talk about the battle of the also-rans among the Republican presidential candidates and their fourth debate last night. Just think of him as your concealed carry. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. But first, welcome to the program. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find a brand new question each and every day. We write it from the news of the day. You can find it at Lars Larson Show on Twitter or X if you prefer. Or you can find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. And I've been really looking forward to talking to George Beebe, who is former director of the CIA's Russia Analysis Department and former Russia advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney, currently director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute. Mr. Beebe, welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm kind of concerned about the the kind of uh, there's there's this desperation on the part of the White House and the administration to get more money from Ukraine to the point where just two data points on that. You've got John Kirby, one of the spokesmen for, for the Biden administration, saying it will be American blood that will be shed if you don't send more money to Ukraine. And then Lloyd Austin, apparently backgrounded members of Congress, and told them, we'll send your uncles and your cousins and your sons to Russia uh, to fight and it'll be their blood if you don't give more money. Um, what should we make of the fact that the administration is literally trying to make the threat personal to Americans? Well, um, I, uh, I I have a very hard time believing uh, that those threats as they're portraying them are real. Um, their suggestion is that 
you know, what we're dealing with in Russia is, is a lot like what we had to deal with in Nazi Germany in World War II. If we don't stop the Russians in Ukraine, they'll just keep on marching right through Europe, and soon enough they'll be in Iowa. Um, and, and I think that's just not a real uh, uh, appreciation of the, of the situation that we're facing. The Russians have had their hands full capturing territory directly on their border uh, in, a, in a country they know very well where they speak the language. It used to be part of the Soviet Union. Um, they've got short logistic lines. They've got every advantage you can imagine. And, you know, nearly two years into this war, they're still not making a lot of, of territorial advances. So, you know, the notion that they're going to actually take on the entire NATO alliance um, and march through Europe, I, I think, is very, very hard to believe. And, and I'm a little bit surprised that the Biden administration thinks this is a persuasive talking point. I mean, because I mean, and, and I want people to, ba- you know, to check me on on quotes, but I'm I'm not reading between the lines when I quote John Kirby as saying, "If you think the price is high now, this is a quote: America will not only spend money but also shed its own blood if the U.S. does not assist Ukraine in its war against Russia." That's the way the Biden administration is laying it out, and that's it suggests to me they're desperate to get this approved. They see it failing on Capitol Hill right now. And so they say, okay, we'll just tell Americans your blood is going to be spilled or the blood of your kids and grandkids if you don't give us more money right now. Yeah, and what's striking about this is that the the one thing that they could do that might actually work, they're not actually willing to do. And that is, you know, think about the possibility of some kind of compromise with Russia and this war. Yep. Um, they would rather threaten Americans with going to war with Russia than to contemplate a compromise, which I find rather disturbing. Well, in fact, tell me this. I'm talking to George Beebe, who's the former director of the CIA's Russia Analysis Department, former Russia advisor Dick Cheney, and currently at the Quincy Institute as director of Grand Strategy. What What do you think would be – I mean, nobody ever likes – you know, if both sides are unhappy, then the compromise is a true compromise. I guess I could look at it that way. What What kind of deal could be cut uh, that in which, you know, Russia won't be entirely happy, Ukraine won't be entirely happy, but it would end the conflict? What What could you foresee? Well, I think the same deal that has been out there for the taking since even before this invasion occurred, and that is – uh, agreeing that Ukraine is going to be a neutral country, not a part of Russia's sphere of influence, not a part of the NATO alliance. Uh, in return, Russia would uh, agree that the war will end, uh, that uh, Ukraine can develop its civilian economy, much like Finland did, much like Austria did uh, during the Cold War period, where, where both those countries said, yeah, we're going to be neutral. And in return, we have the ability to pursue our own internal political uh, choices and and to thrive as a democracy. And and that essentially is the deal that the Russians have said they're willing to make for years. It's it's a deal that the United States has refused because we've said no, no, no. You know, Russia doesn't get to veto NATO enlargement if Ukraine wants to be part of the alliance. You know, that's that's not something that Russia gets a voice in. And I think we're simply going to have to acknowledge the reality that, you know, that's a compromise that we're going to have to take.
And Mr. Beebe, am I wrong in seeing sort of a parallel? I know we got to go back, you know, long ways to the 60s. But when America said we won't tolerate Cuba having Russian Soviet missiles in Cuba, it's not acceptable. You can't do it. So we were telling two sovereign nations, I'm not defending Russia, I'm not defending Cuba for certain, but to say to them, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, you know, and now today we're saying Russia can't say you're not allowed to make this this next door state, Ukraine, part of NATO. That's unacceptable. It sounds like it's it's pretty much the same thing. I know hypocrisy is nothing new in politics, but is there a parallel there? Well, let me put it this way. Um, the United States says that it's Ukraine's sovereign right to decide whether it wants to ally with another country or not. Right. That is not what we said about Cuba. We did not say, oh, well, it's, it's Castro's sovereign right to decide whether he wants to have a military alliance with the <laughs> Soviet Union or not. We said, no, <laughs> there are certain things that, that actually threaten U.S. national security. We are not going to tolerate them, um, and, and we won't. Um, so we, we do need to appreciate that great powers uh, are very reluctant to allow other great powers to, to put military equipment directly on their borders, uh, to ring them with, with uh, military allies. Um, the United States is not willing to see that. Russia is not. China is not. And, and you know, historically, this has been the norm, not the exception. Well, check my understanding. Ever since the Soviet Union broke up, haven't we been doing exactly that? Saying we're going to go to all these former Soviet republic, republics and say we're going to have some presence there, including, I don't know, biolabs, including uh, uh, say about their military and all kinds of other things. We've been doing the very same thing, haven't we, to Russia, ringing them with, with allies, of with our allies? Well, yeah. In the mid-1990s, a lot of these... No, I think that's right. I think uh, back in the mid-1990s, a lot of these countries that were a part of the Soviet Union, were a part of the Warsaw Pact, came to the United States, came to NATO and said, hey, we'd like to be under your military umbrella. We have a long, uh, very uh, tragic history with Moscow, and and we we would like your protection. And, And the United States had a choice to make. What kind of relationship are we going to have with these countries? And there was a debate between people who said, let's enlarge the NATO alliance and bring them in. And those that said, well, no, let's not make them military allies, but let's adopt a program of cooperation with them that will enable us to help them, but not undertake a commitment to defend them if, if uh, they are attacked. And that other option was rejected. Uh, it's one that I think the Russians would have been far more comfortable with. But we're now we're, we're living with the consequences of that decision today. I'm just trying to imagine what happens the day Mexico gets in money trouble and communist China says, hey, you can be our buddies and we'll have friends right on America's southern border. I mean, we've already got Chinese nationals in a fighting age coming across our border thanks to Joe Biden. So. Uh, I, I could imagine almost anything these days. That's George Beebe, who's former director of the CIA's Russia and Analysis Department, former advisor to Dick Cheney, and currently at the Quincy Institute. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show. 
the things you wish you could say. More with Lars. And I'd look at them every morning. It'd be the first thing I'd look at. And I probably got too close to the problem. And my staff will tell you if it was under 1,000 apprehensions the day before, that was a relatively good number. And if it was above 1,000, it was a relatively bad number, and I was going to be in a bad mood the whole day. On Tuesday, there were 4,000 apprehensions. I know that 1,000 overwhelms the system. I cannot begin to imagine what 4,000 a day looks like. So we are truly in a crisis. Now, that's Jay Johnson. He was heading up Homeland Security and border security under Barack Obama. And remember what he said? Under 1,000 a day, uh, manageable. Over 1,000 a day, that's a crisis. 4,000 a day, unimaginable. Well, imagine this. As of this last week, 12,000 illegal aliens a day are crossing into the United States of America. So if 1,000 was a crisis, what is 12 times that number just a few years later under Joe Biden? I thought we'd talk about it with Laura Reese, who's a senior research fellow for Homeland Security at the Heritage Foundation and former acting deputy chief of staff for the Department of Homeland Security. Laura, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to remind people, just for perspective, if Jay Johnson, Obama's guy, said a thousand or more, that's a crisis, and four thousand unimaginable, what should Americans make of the fact that it's twelve thousand a day now for some of the days of the last week? Well, it's an all—it's a whole nother high level, and uh, President Biden just keeps making more records, historical records. And yet they're all bad, whether it's the number of encounters. I mean, we had 10,000 a day, three days in a row this week, and then 12,000. So that's triple what uh, former Secretary Jay Johnson said he couldn't imagine. And yet the current Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, says it's not a crisis. Border's not open. I mean, he just completely gaslights Americans. Uh, But anyone with eyes to see can um, tell that, yes, this is, in fact, a border crisis. Our country has never seen this before. So, Laura, here's the problem. It could be worse. I mean, because you you think, well, a 12,000 day, uh, a couple of hundred thousand every month, uh, bordering on 300,000 a month. I know they're the high twos for some of the months. But now the Biden administration wants to open up more than just the U.S.-Mexico border. Would you mind telling my audience about that? Yes. So uh, some of my colleagues were speaking with uh, Guatemalan government officials, including uh, the president of Guatemala, Gia Mate. And he informed us that he said to Secretary Blinken of uh, the State Department in Mayorkas, your U.S.-Mexico border is very long. Our southern border with El Salvador and Honduras is very short. Please help us secure our southern border in Guatemala. And this will largely cut off the flow. And the secretaries said, well, we'll take it under consideration, and then came back and said, sorry, we don't have the resources to do it. Uh, But then what the Biden administration has done is spent billions of dollars on setting up safe mobility offices, quote unquote, in Guatemala and throughout Central America to receive the migrants coming up from South America uh, and transport them, process them, et cetera, whether that is um, flying them into the U.S. after they have applied for uh, parole using the CBP Mobile One application or other processes. 
Um, but the government of uh, Guatemala, you know, their takeaway was, look, uh, clearly the Biden administration wants to keep the Central American borders open and to keep this flow continuing. Well, and the other thing, Laura, I don't understand about this, uh, because when they say we don't have the resources and you've got a friendly country that is saying, help us close our own border. And the Biden administration seems to have no problem sending endless resources uh, to Ukraine, even to the point of diminishing our own military stocks to where the Pentagon says they need multi-billion dollar replenishment. But we don't have a few uh, extra members uh, to go down and, and help assist a country in closing its own border and solving the problem at a pinch point instead of trying to solve it along a 2,000 mile border with Texas and New Mexico and other states. Yeah, it doesn't pass the laugh test. Um, and meanwhile, the White House is asking Congress for another $13.6 billion for quote-unquote border security money. Uh, but one more dollar given to this administration is just going to accelerate the process of illegal aliens flowing into uh, Central America and up through Mexico to the U.S. Interestingly, I'm in New York City right now and uh, near the uh, Roosevelt Hotel, which is often on, you'll see on TV, it's become a migrant shelter for illegal aliens who arrive in New York City, among other shelters here in the city. And uh, we walked around a little bit and asked where people were from. We were hearing Senegal, Mauritania, China. I mean, truly, they're coming from all over the world. Uh, There were a couple of missionaries there who talked to people and try and um, have people go to church with them. Uh, We spoke with them for a while, and they said they're seeing a lot of Venezuelans and a lot of Haitians because, of course, that's one of the many parole programs uh, Secretary Mayorkas created unconstitutionally uh, to entice people to come here. And when it comes to immigration, if you offer it, they will come. Well, and Laura, uh, I want you to back me up on this or tell me I'm wrong. When they talk about parole, they say, oh, this is part of the law. Well, it is part of the law to say they can make occasional case-by-case exceptions where there is some urgent need that a foreign national be allowed to cross into America for a short period of time. And the examples that people have given are there's a bad car accident and Border Patrol finds an illegal alien on our side of the border, but he needs medical treatment. They don't send him back. They take him to a hospital, get him treatment. If a woman's giving birth, they take her to a hospital. If there's somebody needed to testify in a trial... They can bring that person in under parole. But now the Biden administration is abusing this in a way that the Congress never intended uh, the way they wrote the law and saying, well, we'll just, you know, wave a magic wand. And all of these people are granted parole to enter America, not on a case by case basis and not on a short term basis, but somewhat indefinitely. Absolutely. Yeah, this is supposed to be exceedingly rare. And the examples you gave are the classic examples. Uh, and if you ask uh, agents, immigration agents, you know, pre-Biden, how often would you uh, grant or even be requested parole? I, they could count maybe on two hands. Um, and yet this administration is paroling in people in the tens of thousands every month. And it's unconstitutional. It, it's a runaround of the visa system. The intent of parole is you don't have time to go get a visa um, and for that very reason, Congress did not authorize work permits for parolees. But what is the Biden administration doing? Not only are they mass paroling in hundreds of thousands a year, they're giving them work permits. 
If you're supposed to be here for urgent needs, such as surgery, medical treatment, or testify in a, in a criminal trial, why on earth do you need work authorization? You don't. And so there is no temporary intention by this administration in doing this. And once these people have been in America for five or ten years, they'll argue, well, you can't remove me now because I have ties to the community. I've got children. I've got a wife or a husband. And they'll say, now you, you have to let me stay. And that seems to be the intent of what President Biden's doing. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it is amnesty for sure. Uh, all There are five things illegal aliens want. They want to get into the U.S. They want to stay here, work here send money home, and bring family here. So when we've got millions of cases pending and backlogged in the immigration courts and at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, that means aliens just file more frivolous applications because it, they know it'll take years before their case is ever seen. Absolutely. Laura Reese is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Laura, thank you very much for the time. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Guessing what he'll say next, here's Lars Larson. What they did to Donald Trump with the Russia collusion was one of the biggest abuses of power in the history of our country. These agencies need to be cleaned out. Uh, with me, you'll have a new FBI director on day one. Uh, we're going to clear out the DOJ, the IRS, all these places. Buckle your seatbelts. There's going to be a new sheriff in Thank town. You. Now, that's Ron DeSantis from last night's Battle of the Also-Rans. That's what I call the debate that was held last night. The first three of those debates among the other people running for the nomination from the Republican Party, which I don't think any one of them has a prayer of actually getting the nomination. Donald Trump appears to have it all locked up at this point. And I say that even though I know you're going to say to yourself, Lars, you're a pro-Trump guy. Don't do that. And I say, well, take a look at the reality of it. Donald Trump has north of 50 percent support. There isn't one of those other Republicans running, including Ron DeSantis, including Vivek Ramaswamy. And actually, I can say his name correctly. Many of the people on TV do not. Um, among uh, the others and Chris Christie, for goodness sake, what the heck is wrong with him? And Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley has shown a little bit of support, but not nearly enough to actually win the nomination away from Donald Trump. But DeSantis was right in saying that if, in the unlikely event, he became the nominee and won the presidency, he would plan to clean out the deep state. He would clean up the DOJ, clean up the FBI, etc., and that makes sense. And one of the things he also says that I think makes sense, and that's this. I don't like ballot harvesting. I don't like any of those other things, and in many states, those things have been made illegal. And yet the Democrats have engaged in breaking the laws in some states, in other states, simply taking advantage where there's a hole in the law that says you are allowed to engage in ballot harvesting, and they make great use of it. And what DeSantis and others have said is if they're going to do it and it's legal in the state, then we're going to do it too. Take a listen to this. 
Let me tell you this as the nominee. I think it's important. Not every state's where we need it to be. There is ballot harvesting in places like Nevada, all these places. I am not going to fight with one hand tied behind my back. I'm going to have organizations in all the swing states. If they're harvesting, we're harvesting. If they're Zuckerbucks, we're Zuckerbucks. We are going to exploit whatever the rules are. Yeah, and that actually makes perfect sense. Now, do I want to see ballot harvesting outlawed? across the land. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to see all 50 states adopt rules against it. And if anybody tells you they have to do ballot harvesting, no, they don't. And you know what ballot harvesting was? In places like Wisconsin, you would have the liberals send in groups of usually college-age young people, men and women, probably some pronouns too, and they'd show up at, say, a nursing home where some of the residents don't even know their own names, can't even recognize their families, and these young people would sit down with folks in a nursing home and say, here, let me help you with your ballot. That's ballot harvesting. Also, collecting massive amounts of ballots which have no chain of custody and then delivering them as they were delivered in the middle of the night, uh, documented in the movie 2,000 Mules. And then, of course, because it is the Battle of the Also-Rans, and it's more like a cage match, you've got uh, Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy going at it. I've got to let you listen to part of that. The fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. So shut up for a while. So your version of foreign policy experience was closing a bridge from New Jersey to New York. Yeah. So do everybody a favor. Just walk yourself off that stage. Enjoy a nice meal yeah. and get the hell out of this yeah, place. Yeah, the enjoy the nice meal was kind of sweet because Chris Christie was losing weight for a while, but now he's ballooned back up to the same shape he was in or always has been in. And then, of course, there's Vivek Ram. Mishwami talking to Ron DeSantis about how much he owes Donald Trump because you have to remember history. Uh, what's happened in just in the last number of years, Ron DeSantis is only the governor of Florida because Donald Trump stepped in when DeSantis' campaign was absolutely foundering and he offered the kind of endorsement and help that got Ron DeSantis into the governor's mansion. Listen to Vivek Ramaswamy talk about that. With all three of my other colleagues on this debate stage, is all three of them have been licking Donald Trump's boots for years for money and endorsements. Ron DeSantis, you've been a great governor, but you would have never been one without actually begging Donald Trump for that endorsement. And you attacked him in your book a year ago. Same thing with Chris Christie as a lobbyist, begging them for COVID money for his special interests in New Jersey, prepping him for the debates last time around. These people are now Monday morning quarterbacking some decision he made. And and he's fair. And that's a fair criticism because you've got all these people saying, no, you've got to give the nomination to me. Don't give it to Donald Trump. And yet all of them seem to have received a lot of help from Donald Trump over time and then forgotten about it as soon as they could. And Vivek Ramaswamy, I've got to say, uh, knows what he's talking about when he talks about the deep state. Because remember, when Donald Trump became president of the United States, he campaigned on the idea that America is run by a deep state. Now, I know that most of the media said, well, that's just a fiction. It's mythology. It's not. Understand what's happened. Uh, various agencies of the federal government these days, almost every one of those agencies has been weaponized by the Democrats, by the liberals, so that the DOJ does the bidding of the Democrat National Committee and the FBI does the same. And the Pentagon is now doing the same as well. And I think Ramaswamy's concerns about the deep state are legitimate. Listen to this. I think the real enemy is not Donald Trump. It's not even Joe Biden. It is the deep state that at least Donald Trump attempted 
to take on. And if you want somebody who's going to speak truth to power, then vote for somebody who's going to speak the truth to you. Why am I the only person on the stage, at least, who can say that January 6th now does look like it was an inside job? And it does look like it was an inside job. Now that we've seen all the video almost three years after the event. I mean, remember, this was an incident that happened in a public place. It happened with cameras all over the place. And we were told in late January of 2021, this is the reason to impeach an American president in the last couple of weeks of his presidency. But no, you, the American people, cannot see the video. And there have been various Republicans who've taken way too long to get that public, that video made public. But when it finally was, we saw why the Democrats didn't want it made public. Their whole narrative that this was a murderous riot, that it was an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States. Well, you know, it wasn't true and it wasn't backed up by the facts or the evidence. But the American people were not allowed to see the evidence. And then, of course, there was the watch party for this debate, this fourth debate among the GOP also rans. And guess who won it? Take a listen to this report from uh, NBC. And we're keeping track of their opinions. And by the end of the night, you had Vivek Ramaswamy out of the watch party of about 30 people getting five votes. You had Ron DeSantis getting two, both Nikki Haley and Chris Christie having a sole one vote. Um, and get this, former President Donald Trump, despite not being on the stage, got 18. So that's really reflective of the vibe of the night here in Atlanta. Absolutely right. The uh, straw poll for the debate that Donald Trump did not want to attend, did not need to attend, and did not attend. Donald Trump won the debate last night. The other four are still also rent. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. On social media, you can check me out on Twitter. We are, of course, on Getter as well. We're on Truth as well. And you can find my Instagram feed, and you can always tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.